work really hard to kind of make sure that the worship goes in an orderly and sort of uh, established, if you will, fashion. And a lot of them were out, and so I just want to say a special thank you to everyone stepping up kind of last minute and uh, making everything happen and sort of pitching in and stepping up. So I appreciate it. Um, so I want to remind everybody that tonight, uh, this Sunday night, will be our leadership service. And uh, it used to be kind of just our youth leadership service. We've opened it up to anybody who... Uh, what we'll do is we'll have sort of an abbreviated sort of traditional format, a little bit shorter lesson, and then we'll leave about 15 to 20 minutes at the end uh, for some of our young men or just anyone who wants to feel more comfortable reading scripture or leading a song, leading a prayer uh, in front of sort of our corporate worship. Um, and we believe doing things like this kind of allows us to have a better uh, bench, if you will, for when times like this happen so that we have uh, as many young men as we possibly can who feel comfortable uh, getting up and being part of our worship service. And then next Sunday night, uh, something I'm very excited about is Mr. Phil Dunn from the Bumpus Mills Church of Christ is going to be preaching for us next Sunday night. Uh, something we've got a lot of feedback on as a church from you guys over the last year is just reconnecting with other churches in our area and kind of building some of those relationships up. And so I am super excited to, to host Phil here from Bumpus Mills. Um, I've, I've known him really for a while since he introduced himself when I first came to town. I've, I've gotten to know him pretty well. Uh, I have a lot of respect for him and that leadership over there at that congregation. And when, he spoke la when we spoke last week, he was excited to be here. So I look forward to that next Sunday night. As for this morning, we will be studying a, a world-famous passage of Scripture, a very controversial topic, especially in today's day and age. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and Matthew 7 begins with the ever-popular line, Judge not, lest you be judged. I say it's controversial because this is a, a frequently cited phrase in moral and ethical discussions these days. A recent poll actually found that almost half of Americans believe moral truth is relative to one's situations or circumstances. What I found more concerning about that poll is that one out of three Christians believe that moral truth is relative. Before our leadership service tonight, and sort of that abbreviated lesson I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between biblical tolerance and moral relativism. Because I believe this current phase we're in a society is not simply tolerance, but it is moral relativism, which is where there is no true right and no true wrong, but it's all dependent on the person and their situation. And we're talking about that tonight because I believe these ideas of, of tolerance and relativism are very closely tied to what Jesus talks about here, and that is judging, or being judgy, being judgmental, passing judgment. I think these ideas are related in a lot of ways, but, but have you ever noticed, just kind of in the world today, that the people who boast the loudest about being tolerant are often the most judgmental? The ones who boast about their tolerance are often the quickest to judge you for not sharing their particular worldview. The modern sense of tolerance is not just acceptance of a diversity of beliefs and thought, but it is actually the, the exaltation of some beliefs and thoughts above those of others. It's no longer simply enough to agree with someone who disagrees with you. No, 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 you must stand up and declare your happiness for their choice, even if you disagree with it. You must celebrate what you think might be wrong or immoral. And if you do anything other than join in that celebration, well, now you are judgmental. You are the one who is intolerant. I think that's quite the little trick, if you ask me. 
This is what the world, our current state is what the world would have Christians believe tolerance looks like. They would have us believe that this is what the command not to judge looks like. I believe Matthew 7.1 has the rare distinction of being a passage I have had quoted and explained to me by non-Christians much more than Christians. I hear it from the world and by people who probably can't name very many other statements of Jesus tell me what Jesus said much more than I hear it from my brothers and sisters in the church. I think that's because our world would gladly accept a definition or an interpretation of this passage that means nothing is ever truly right or nothing is ever truly wrong. People say things like, well, don't judge me, you're not God. Or it's not your place to judge. Or don't you know, Jesus said, do not judge. If we accept this definition, if we accept that by saying judge not lest you be judged, if we accept that by saying that Jesus meant we should never declare anything as fundamentally right or fundamentally wrong, then Jesus was a hypocrite. We can be quite confident that this is not what Jesus meant at all. Earlier in our series, we studied how Jesus said, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. He said, as you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. He said, do not heap up empty phrases as the pagans do. In all of those passages, Jesus is pronouncing moral judgment. He's absolutely saying that this way of conducting yourself is right and this way of conducting yourself is wrong. In Matthew 18, 8, he said, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. There's a reason that we all know those verses, but churches have plenty of two-eyed and two-handed people, even though we might all have sinned. There's a reason we're not chopping and gouging as part of our worship service every morning. Because we understand the point Jesus is making in Matthew 18, and that is not to go around cutting off hands and gouging out eyes. I would suggest something similar is going on here. If we are to believe what the world might tell us when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, that Jesus is saying, well, we shouldn't judge character or we shouldn't make even moral discernments at all, then at the very least, at the very least, we accept a few of Jesus that is hypocritical. I would suggest that the point Jesus is making about judge not lest you be judged is that instead we should be careful how we judge. We should be careful how we judge people. John 7.24 says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. I believe Jesus is saying that we ought to judge as Jesus judged. Sometimes when people preach this lesson, they make a semantic difference between judgment and discernment and kind of this, this word game. But I would say it's a little bit simpler than that. Christians should absolutely judge correctly. Or as John 7.24 says, with righteous judgment. We should do so because Jesus even tells us that one day we will be judged. And he gives very many parables and illustrations to that end. So as we study this passage this morning, 
As we read it together, I want us to consider what exactly Jesus might mean. So Matthew 7, 1 begins, Judge not that you be not judged. He says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can say, dear brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus calls the church to behave a certain way in these passages. And I would say as we think about all of these ideas of what Jesus says about judgment and, and about what he says about the church and how we should have standards and, and how we're to judge or how we're to not judge, I would suggest that we could start we could start first by being comfortable with not conforming. This pertains not just to this text, but to really what we've been talking about this whole time. Because the world, whether they will admit it or not, is a very judgmental place. If you don't believe me, just take a visit down to your local middle school or high school. I'm 30 years old, and nothing will humble you faster than a group of high schoolers with a bone to pick. Within seconds of seeing you, they will figure out exactly what, what physical attribute, what part of your outfit, what part of your clothing, what part of your appearance you're the most sensitive about, and tease you mercilessly about it. High schoolers are very talented in this way. But Jesus says the church should not be this way. We should certainly not judge by appearances. In this way, being comfortable with not conforming also, also really means being comfortable with being uncomfortable. I like to think, and that's every now and then we get a visitor who kind of either humbles me and tells me this isn't true or they make me feel kind of warm and fuzzy and tell me it is. But I, I like to think that we are a place where people feel welcome. Where people feel welcome to sort of come as they are, as the saying goes. I want people to feel that way because, in my experience, visitors may not always remember the names of the people they meet. They might not remember the names of the preacher or the elders or the deacons or even what the lesson was about. But I can assure you, if people come to visit, they will remember if they feel judged. They will remember that interaction with that one person who maybe gave them a, a snide glance or made an impolite comment. I've only worked as a minister with, with the smaller country churches. And I pray that, that the Lord will allow me to continue to work with small country churches because it's just a preference and I understand that. But it's, it's just where I feel comfortable. It's the dynamic that I sort of gravitate to, that I enjoy. But if I'm being honest, my experience has shown me that I think this is something that the bigger city churches tend to get right a little bit better than the small country churches. They tend to be a little bit more understanding that you can come dressed as you are. I will never forget my first interaction with an older gentleman at a church I grew up at. I believe he's an elder now. I couldn't tell you his name. I don't think he had said very much to me before. But in fact, the first thing he said to me was, Do you really think shorts are appropriate for Sunday night? I was like eight, ten years old. I couldn't tell you anything else that guy said. I'm sure he did plenty of great and wonderful things in the church. But I remember that. Discussion on shorts is for another time. 
But we tend to be a little bit more judgmental when it comes to people's dress and their appearance. And I understand you can't find a scriptural basis for how one should dress, whether they should wear closed-toed shoes or shorts. In fact, anytime this conversation always comes up, I joke with people that we should really go back to the biblical model and we should all wear togas and sandals. No one really seems to agree with me on that for some reason. I don't, I don't know why. But I think it's something the larger, maybe the urban churches get a little... They, they tend to welcome you regardless of who your dad was or where your grandmother worked or where you went to high school or who your aunt was in high school, who did their hair. It has been my experience that the small town church struggles a little bit with judging, as the world does, with judging people by their appearance. I want to read you a selection from James 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, but I, I usually read from the ESV. The translation I'm, I'm reading out of this morning as I read a couple verses from James 2 is actually from the BTV, and that's the Brother Terrence version, which is sort of like the message. It's a loose paraphrase, but stick with me. I think you'll recognize it. From James 2.1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ for the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a suit with a nice haircut comes into your building... And a person with blue hair or visible tattoos or facial piercings also comes in. And you pay attention to the man with nice clothing and have a nice conversation while telling them how welcome they are. While you say to the funny person, hello, with a fake, polite smile and a weak handshake. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I hope you'll forgive if that seemed a little blasphemous. Suggesting a paraphrase of the word of God. But I think it's one thing to say when, you know, if, if someone looks nice or someone looks rich or someone looks poor. But if we put it in terms that we're familiar with, the truth is the church has a judge by appearance problem. But the church should not judge by people's appearances. Because we should not judge as the world judges. We should be comfortable, we should get comfortable not conforming in this way. Now that statement I pair very strongly with the next. And that is that the church, as a church, we need to get comfortable condemning sin. We should no mean judge people by their appearances or by how things look. But I would argue that this is the kind of judging or discernment that we absolutely should be doing. Christians have an obligation to warn people of sin. We have an obligation to warn people of sin, especially those who call themselves Christians. Matthew 16 would not say what it does about handling a brother in correction, about handling someone who sins against you, if we did not have an obligation to warn our brothers and sisters about sin. This is another very difficult way that we have to not conform and not be like the world. We should get comfortable condemning sin. As I said when we began this lesson, we are in a time where, where calling wrong behavior wrong is not very popular. But within the church, we must always be willing to call sin what the Bible calls sin. We can and should warn everyone of that. But we should not be surprised. We should not be disheartened. We should not even really... Uh, be bothered that much when the world does not adhere to the standards of Christianity. 
1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13 is a passage I've referenced many, many times in this regard. But in it, Paul emphasizes that we have a greater responsibility to our brothers and sisters who call themselves Christians. We ought to warn everyone of sin when we go and preach the gospel. But do not be surprised when the people of the world do not want to adhere to a terms of a contract they never agreed to. That's what this perhaps rather confusing idiom in verse 5 means. Do not throw your pearls before swine. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Trying to enforce the gospel among non-Christians is like giving your pearls to swine. Enforcing biblical principles on those who do not even believe the Bible, let alone make a commitment to believe it, will just end poorly. But... These two first few verses of Matthew 7 speak to a very simple truth when it comes to being comfortable condemning sin. We should feel comfortable calling sin what the Bible calls sin, but be very aware that with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. When you are willing to speak out about the sin in others, understand they will come after you. When people find out you're a Christian in your school or in your workplace, understand they will now view every move, every opinion, every careless word, every careless thought that you have through that lens. And they no longer just judge you, but they'll judge the church by your actions. Your whole life becomes put under a magnifying glass. I believe this statement is as much a cautionary tale as it is anything else. Because Jesus wants you to be aware that the world will hold you to the same standard you preach with, if not a higher one. And they should. I believe they absolutely should. Because I think the world would have a lot less problems with what Christians try to preach if the Christians preaching didn't have so many problems. People don't mind being corrected. I think people don't like being corrected by people they think are hypocrites. Whether we like it or not, the prevailing opinion among the unchurched in our world, which make up a bigger and bigger percentage of our population with every passing year, I will have you know, the prevailing opinion among the unchurched in our world is that the church is full of hypocrites. This statement on judging means our ethical standards start with us. I believe the world would have a lot less problems with what Christians try to preach if the Christians preaching didn't themselves have so many problems. Because I can call sin what the Bible calls sin while still conducting myself in a Christ-like manner. When it comes to condemning sin, our motivation matters. Like so many of the things we've studied in Jesus' sermon, his Our motivation for calling people out in their sin matters. Several weeks ago, we looked at the example of of the Pharisees bringing that woman caught in adultery. And we mentioned and we studied this story that if the Pharisees were concerned with righteousness, they would have brought the woman and the man. Recall the crime we're talking about. takes two to tango, as the saying goes. The law called them to bring punishment on both the woman and the man, but the problem is they were not concerned with upholding moral law. They were not concerned with enforcing righteousness. They were concerned with self-righteousness. When I look at this story through our modern lens, 
The Bible calls a great many number of practices sexually immoral. In my experience in ministry, I would say pornography, premarital sex, and infidelity in a marriage are far and away the most common. But what's very interesting to me is that I find most preachers in most churches would rather talk about something that's not those three. We'd much rather talk about this kind of sex morality that the truth is most of us probably don't deal with. And so I would ask, what is our motivation when we call out sin? Are we really seeking righteousness? Are we seeking God's righteousness? Are we really seeking to to bring about a morally upright community? Or are we guilty of seeking self-righteousness? Are we calling out the sin of others so that we can feel better about our own? Our motivation matters. Very closely tied to this idea of condemning sin is that we should be comfortable with correction. And in this, I think specifically about the church, specifically about brothers and sisters, because it's important that our heart is in the right place when we call out sin, when we talk about wrongdoing, because talking about it is something we have to do. We must feel comfortable correcting one another. A community without standards is not a true spiritual community. We must, yes, we must go out and preach the gospel. Yes, we must be involved in outreach and we must be rooted into our communities in ways that draws people closer to God. But there must be clear demarcations between the church and those communities that we're in. We must call sin what the Bible calls sin. And we must get comfortable correcting one another on that front. Because correction is a a difficult but necessary part of Christian development. I would again consider the parallel sort of illustration of of the parent and child. A parent who lets their kids be happy for a moment at the expense of being miserable for a lifetime fails their kids. It's true. There's plenty of times as a parent, I'm sure that I have in front of me, that you could probably tell me better than I already know, where you will have to tell your kids something they don't want to hear. Something that will upset them greatly. That's something that might even result in a one or two hour long streaming fit. But the truth is, is that the parent who lets their child be happy for a moment at the expense of being miserable for a lifetime is failing their child. Some of you might be old enough to remember the the, the Friends Don't Let Friends Drive Drunk ad council campaign. It was this public service announcement that argued that that if you truly care about your friend that you've been hanging out with all evening, you will stop them from making a potentially life-changing mistake. They said if you care about them, you will confront them. Well, what about an afterlife-changing mistake? Are we comfortable talking to our own brothers and sisters about the mistakes or the choices that will impact our eternal life? And as if that wasn't challenging enough, I would ask you to consider the reverse. Are you someone who is comfortable with confrontation? And oh, by the way, I don't mean confronting others. Most people are fine with that. I mean, are you comfortable when people confront you? Are you receptive to criticism? Do you handle it well when people feel like they, sh- they are guiding you or trying to help you or say, hey, I think you can improve this area of your spiritual life? Or... 
Are you the type of churchgoer who thinks everything nice the preacher has to say is about you and everything mean is about that terrible person who sits next to you or three pews over? I always joke that sometimes we talked about marriage and relationship things and you have the spouses who are kind of doing this the whole time. And that's funny. We all do that to some extent. But the truth is, some of us can hear a whole lesson on something negative against some kind of sin, and we are drilling lasers into the back of that person, three pews in front of us, that we think needs to hear that lesson. But all the good lessons about the church are obviously about me. We need to be comfortable initiating and receiving correction. Because correction is an essential part of both enforcing our standards and, and of just the growth process. It is difficult to tell someone something they don't want to hear. It is difficult being told something you don't want to hear. But when it comes to our spiritual health, when it comes to our salvation, it is always worth it. It's always worth it. This is the philosophy behind things like accountability partners, whether it's working out or dieting or, or even recovery groups in, in those uh, addiction programs. The idea is it's a group of people who will hold you accountable, who will not tolerate fakeness or even outright deception. They will call you out because they want what's best for you. Another hallmark of those two communities I just mentioned is that they are comfortable with convicted people. For some reason, the word convicted always gets used with felon. It's not really where I'm going here. But the church should be comfortable with those convicted of sin. We use this word convicted to talk about when a, when a passage of scripture or even a sermon or even a song or something that's read resonates with us. We'll say that something convicted me. It, it opened my eyes to realizing that I've somehow been in the wrong. And when this happens, the church should be a place where people feel like they can be honest about what they have been convicted of. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We talk all the time about wanting to be a place where people, both Christians and non-Christians alike, feel like they can be healed. What that means is that on the individual level, each of us is responsible for cultivating that environment. For fostering the spiritual culture where people feel comfortable sharing their struggles. Where people can be confident that they will be prayed for and healed. Not judged. Not gossiped about. Not put down or shamed. And understand that there is a fine line. There is a tension inherent in some of these claims. But yes, we need to conform I'm sorry, condemn sin even when the world does not. We need to uphold the standards of a community of what it means to be a community of Christ-like believers while at the same time giving people the space to learn, grow, and make mistakes. We cannot expect people to feel comfortable confessing their sin and comfortable growing and learning honestly if they're not given the room to make mistakes. Because the truth is, if we don't just say this, if we actually believe Romans 3.23, all have sinned, then we all make mistakes. And the same grace, the same comfort that we want when we're the ones making mistakes, we ought to show others. 
something Jesus talks about just a few verses from now. And talking about our discussion on righteousness a few weeks ago, I believe this was on a Sunday night, but we talked about how so often in the church we get this element of what Jesus is saying backwards. We want to be proud of our righteous deeds. We want everyone to know all the things we do right. And then we want to hide our sin and keep it from people. Not just keeping quiet, but maybe even lying about it and covering it up. While Jesus says in the first half of Matthew 6 to be secretive about our righteousness while being comfortable with being honest about our sin and about our struggles. It is of the utmost importance that people believe the church is a place where they can be honest, where they can grow, where, where those who are struggling, who are still dealing with real-life problems can still feel welcome. Because if it seems like the church does not welcome flawed people those flawed people will not just suddenly stop having problems, they will stop coming to church. They will keep moving, they will find somewhere else. To again speak to our parents, if your child does not feel like they can talk to you about their mistakes, which do you think is more realistic? That they'll stop making mistakes or that they'll stop talking to you? The same is true for the church. So the question becomes, can, can you welcome flawed people and allow room for growth without relaxing the Bible's view on sin and on condemning sin? And I would say the answer, not from me, but from Scripture, is a resounding yes. One example is that woman caught in adultery in John 8. The one to whom Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. But Jesus himself was asked why he spent so much time with sinners why he associated with the unholy, why he dined with the Gentiles. And his response in Luke 5.31 is that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When sinners come to the church, they should feel pushed to repentance, not pushed to the exit. I can't tell you how many congregations I've been a part of who would rather just be a place where people like that aren't welcome than deal with their problems and their difficulties. And guess what? I'm in ministry. Yes, it's harder to deal with people who have problems. So what? We all got them. That word sinners applies to both those outside the church as well as those inside. We are a community who can be honest with one another or if we are a community who cannot be honest, who cannot be comfortable with another, who cannot support one another, as we learn and grow in our faith, we will become a community of fake Christians. We will become a community just like the world thinks we are, where we lie about our problems, instead pointing the fingers at other people. We will become those Christians who pretend everything is fine when it's not, who pretend we have no problems, we have no real temptations, we have no real struggles with sin, when in reality we are dying on the vine and growing further from God every day. We will paint ourselves as Christians who do not need help when in reality we are drowning. When that happens, we become guilty of the very hypocrisy that Jesus condemns. We become a church who can never succeed in our mission. I would call us to remember that as a church, 
as a spiritual community, we are above all things part of God's mission. All throughout our series, we've been talking about this phrase, the kingdom of God, what Jesus calls the kingdom of God, and how to be a part of that kingdom means to participate in the mission of God. Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, I am the true vine, and my father the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. Those branches are gathered up, thrown into the fire, and burned. God calls us to be a part of his purpose and his mission, truthfully or else. He calls us to go out to heal and make disciples. If you are hurting, if you are struggling, I want you to understand, whether you're a visitor, whether you're a member, whether you've been here twice or 200 times, that our very purpose is to help you in any way that we might have ability. There's something that's been weighing heavy on your mind. There's no shame in asking for help. Our mission is to reach the lost, to heal those who are hurting, and to go and make disciples. If you're with us this morning and you have not made a decision to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, to commit yourself to becoming a follower who is devoted to Him in all things, and that is a journey that can begin today. If this invitation is for you, you ask to become at this time.